our speaker today uh, is going to be Nate Pertzer. Nate uh, is uh, w- one of the great language students from uh, graduates from Chafer, and uh, he's currently a missionary in Guatemala teaching at the Central American Theological Seminary. Uh, he's had a B.S. in uh, mechanical engineering. That's one of the good degrees, uh, the, the degrees that you pay tuition for and you have employability after you graduate with that degree. Uh, and then he has the THM from uh, Chafer, and he has uh, five children, so he's competing with uh, Clay Ward, who has uh, six. And uh, so anyway, he loves teaching the Word of God, and he wants to uh, speak to us uh, on the issue of language and why languages are important in seminary training. Uh, so, Nate, uh, it's all yours. Good afternoon. hope you had a good lunch because we're having a, an exciting topic um, right now. And what that topic is, is the value of learning biblical Greek. Uh, this talk, and as Robbie mentioned last night, the entire conference is dedicated uh, to Glenn Riddle, who passed away this year, and uh, the Lord took him home. Um, after a motorcycle accident in Thailand where he was serving as a missionary. Just a couple of words about Glenn. Uh, He has some ice cream in his hand there. Glenn was a very passionate man. He was passionate about a lot of things, such as bluebell ice cream, (laughs) original recipe Dr. Pepper from Dublin, Texas, which he would call moonshine and smuggle across the border into New Mexico. He was passionate about the state of Texas, which he called the promised land. And uh, he was extremely passionate about the biblical languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Uh, Right there, we're we're traveling on our way to China, where I had the privilege of serving with him two weeks abroad, uh, where he did missions work with some of his star language students. And what motivated Glenn so much, you'll hear a lot about Glenn if you talk to people uh, who know him, but he was incredibly motivated by the the abounding grace of God, by the fact that if you talk to people about his, his background and all the things he did for the Lord, but you sometimes don't hear that when he was younger in the Navy that he um, was incredibly lost. And what saved him was the grace of God, and that just motivated Glenn and everything he did and all the trips. He went on to China, to Nepal, and serving people that um, that wanted to have in-depth biblical teaching. And so with that, we'll begin the talk about the value of learning biblical Greek. Over a decade ago, I heard a pastor tell of an encounter he had. The pastor had preached a sermon wherein, at some juncture, he dismissed the English translation and instead relied on a certain understanding of Greek to explain the biblical text's meaning more accurately. Afterwards, a lady approached him somewhat distraught. She did not like that a correct understanding of the text in question depended upon knowing Greek. The lady wanted assurances that the word of God could be understood apart from that knowledge. Now, just this year, I had another encounter uh, of a different kind. 
I was watching my son play soccer down in, in Guatemala City, and I was speaking to another father on the soccer of uh, his uh, jugadores, uh, compañero, his player, his teammate. And after learning that I taught biblical Greek at the seminary, the dad asked me if it was true that none of the Spanish translations are reliable. Some, someone that dad highly respected apparently convinced him of that position. And I imagine that there are people who believe the same about every single English translation. But at any rate, the implication was that one has to be a Greek scholar to understand anything in the Bible. Now, in both stories, the desired objective is the same, to understand correctly the Word of God. The difference involves the perceived value or importance of knowing the biblical languages and what that role should be of knowing those languages and reaching the goal of understanding the Word of God. Now, although neither example is particularly scholarly or informed, each is helpful because it provides the extreme position on both ends regarding this subject. On the one hand, the lady wants Greek and the other languages to be of no value at all, lest she be hindered from comprehensively understanding all of Scripture on the basis of her English text alone. The irony here is that the alleged freedom from the biblical languages only exists through complete dependence on someone, somewhere, at some time, who had knowledge of the languages and used that knowledge to produce the needed translation that she was using. In other words, any understanding of the Word of God is ultimately and inextricably linked to knowledge about the languages in which it was originally written. And furthermore, this view ignores or minimizes important realities inherent in translations and the translation process. So we have of no value, the biblical Greek is of no value interpreting any passage. That's what she believed. Now, on the other hand, at the other extreme, the dad was under the impression that knowing Greek and the other languages was so essential that no one could really understand any of Scripture apart from knowledge of the original languages. Aside from the fact that this is probably just an excuse not to read the Bible, or an excuse of some to have unchecked power over those who do not know the languages, the position overemphasizes issues with translations and the translation process. After all, people effectively communicate across language barriers every day by means of translation. This view also leads to the absurd idea that instead of missionaries to translate the scriptures into heart languages of other peoples, that we should send scholars to make everybody literate in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic? The answer lies somewhere in the middle. Through a good or even even average translation, men, women, and children can know much about God, including his person, his work in history, how to have a relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ, how to live a life of faith and obedience that pleases him, etc., That is undeniable. We praise God for the immeasurable blessings and benefits that scripture translations have been and continue to be for all. With that said, it would be a mistake to conclude that learning the biblical languages in general or biblical Greek in particular, which is the focus of this talk, is of little or no value. 
On the contrary, learning biblical Greek is of great value because it enhances one's ability to study and interpret the scriptures correctly. And that's essentially the thesis of this paper, that this paper will seek to demonstrate that point that learning biblical Greek is of great value because it enhances one's ability to study and interpret the scriptures correctly. Many of the examples will be from Romans, and a couple of them are favorites of Glenn, to whom this paper is dedicated. We're going to look at three areas, two examples from each. We're going to look at examples from Greek concerning words, examples from Greek syntax, and then lastly, examples from literary devices. So as we enter the section about examples from words, many people who have not studied Greek and perhaps some who have believe that the primary benefit of acquiring the language is to learn what the various biblical words actually mean. This impression probably exists because the average churchgoer hears more from the pulpit about Greek words than any other element of the language. Some preachers, for example, appeal to a word's etymology or what the word meant in history, uh, the word's origin, to provide insights into its meaning. For the same reason, others might include a lengthy word study in the sermon. Unfortunately, the result is often not a significant contribution to the understanding of the passage at hand, but simply a concordance report of the various passages where the word occurs. Various factors explain the emphasis upon Greek and sermon. First, words are an important component of the languages and of such, and as such worthy of diligent study. When that study yields valuable information, it should be shared. Second, information about words is much easier to communicate to the average church attendee and is more exciting, or perceived that way at least, than other technical grammatical points such as the aspectual force of the present participle. Third, some pastors, for whatever reason, have not developed proficiency with Greek and cannot delve into the text beyond a basic word study. And finally, a small minority of pastors, hopefully it's very small, simply talk about Greek words and other aspects of the languages for the purpose of self-aggrandizement. In light of the above, imagine the surprise of new students of Greek, like myself, who expecting to learn the real meaning of Greek words, discover that in general, the student merely memorizes many glosses. That is, English words whose meaning in a given, given context more or less adequately reflect or translate, in other words, the Greek term used in a particular context. The student learns that hamartia is translated as sin or transgression, etymologies or other real meanings, such as the commonly mentioned hamartia as sin as missing the mark, are not learned. Etymologies are not learned because their primary value is really limited to diachronic study of a languages of a language. That's how the languages changes over a long period of time. Two, because providing insight, the the second 
value of etymologies is that it provides insight into words whose meaning are unknown due to very limited attestation in the relevant literature. And this is particularly an issue with the Old Testament Hapax legomena, words that only appear once, where the uh, scholars have to go to other Near Eastern languages to understand uh, what the, the word possibly meant back then. So it's useful for that, uh, for explaining the meaning of some compound words, and then also when an author clearly invokes etymology as relevant to his uh, statement in the passage. Thus, although etymologies can be interesting and often valuable, For illustrative purposes, they are largely irrelevant in our central concern of exegesis for interpreting the text. What matters for exegesis is the meaning of a word in use at the time and within the context of the author's speaking or writing. And perhaps the easiest way to validate that conclusion is to think of our own experience with English. Very few of us are aware of the etymology of most English words. For example, what's the etymology or the historical origin of happy or concern, life or banana? None of us knows, I assume, and most of us don't know, nor do we care. Nevertheless, we do know what the words mean today when we use them, and we use them all the time. The same would be true of a speaker of an ancient language. Now, turning to word studies, a few benefits are worth mentioning. First, word studies are useful for determining a word's semantic range, the various possible meanings of a word in the different contexts. For example, the Spanish word llave uh, has various meanings depending on the context. It could be an implement for opening a lock, a key, in other words. It could be an instrument for tightening a bolt or a wrench. Uh, it can be a handle that controls water, the flow of water through uh, the faucet. So it's the, the handle of the faucet. In English, an example would be dump, the word dump. Dump can mean to empty out a container by tilting, or it can mean to end a romantic relationship with somebody. It can mean various things. It doesn't mean both. It means one of those things in the given context, and we as native speakers of English automatically understand what the meaning is within the given context uh, because of our fluency in the language. With languages where we don't have that kind of uh, dominance of understanding, that's why we have to do research to try to understand and figure some of those things out. So the exegete uses that information to determine the the use most appropriate to a context under consideration. And to a certain extent, this process reproduces information already available in the standard Greek lexicons by Bauer, Lowe, and Nida. Uh, moreover, the results are often mundane and do not yield powerful preaching material. That means, although it might be important for the foundation, it's not necessarily something that we would want to share from the pulpit. Nevertheless, the process is valuable for the contribution it makes to understanding the passage's meaning, uh, for the sake of the individ individual's personal exploration of the text, and for a continual evaluation of the Greek lexical tools used for biblical study. The second way word studies are helpful is tracing the development of different events, themes, concepts, and teachings in Scripture. 
The interpreter, however, must remember that study of one term or even other lexically related terms does not necessarily encompass all that scripture has to say about a given topic. A comprehensive investigation should include non-lexically related terms, synonyms, antonyms, as well as passages that address the topic without using the terms normally associated with the matter. For example, if we're going to study the Trinity in the New Testament we're never, or in the Bible, we'll never reach that goal just on the basis of the word Trinity because you won't find that word. We can use language and talk about concepts without necessarily using specific words normally associated with it. So this often occurs in, it may occur in biblical stories and parables, for example. So the third benefit of word studies is that they can highlight certain connotations or associations that the author or biblical reader would immediately make but are not obvious to us reading from so far away. Uh, This brings us to the passage under consideration in this title uh, in Romans 3.25, which is cited here, which says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Now the word right there, propitiation or hilasterion, translated propitiation by the uh, New American Standard Bible, which I have here, and other versions also translated that way. Um, using a Greek concordance or other electronic search tools reveals that this word, hilasterion, appears twice in the New Testament, in Romans 3.25 and in Hebrews 9.5. The, la- the latter reference we have here, now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary, For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies. Having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat, hilasterion. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. The occurrence in Hebrews 9.5 is clearly a reference to the mercy seat that was on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle and overshadowed by two cherubim. Now, upon broadening the search of this word, the Greek student learns that hilasterion appears 21 times in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, surprisingly, every occurrence is a reference to the mercy seat within a similar context of the the tabernacle or, or the temple. Now, without delving too deeply into the details, the basic idea of the mercy seat was one of a meeting place between a holy God and a sinful people. 
We see that in Exodus 25:17 to 22, Leviticus 16, 1 to 22. Consequently, when Paul writes that God set Jesus forth as a hilasterion, a, a mercy seat, those familiar with the Septuagint immediately associate Jesus with the mercy seat from the Old Testament. They recognize that Jesus is the ultimate mercy seat, the meeting place between a holy God and sinful people. Unfortunately, that vivid association is lost to those who read the English translation, propitiation, or any number of the other versions or renderings that exist in the translations. Now, someone might object saying that learning or exploring the Greek text is not necessary here since numerous versions translate hilasterion as mercy seat, thereby retaining the association. And in my paper, which isn't on the CD, but will be, I'll give to um, the authorities that be, the paper has those references. Um, So there are translations that have mercy seat in them. Uh, Furthermore, numerous Bible studies, commentaries, or electronic Bible programs include that type of information, namely that that this word uh, could be understood as mercy seat. But the problem is that although the information is available in some translations, it is not present in all translations, which results in conflicting data. The person who does not know Greek is lacking a tool that enables direct evaluation and explanation of the data, that is, the various translations. Rather than going directly to the text, he must resort to secondary sources. Besides missing the joy and satisfaction of finding the answer personally, the same problem exists at the secondary level. If the secondary sources conflict regarding the Greek, who is to believe, be believed and on what basis? The person without knowledge of Greek must decide without an important tool at his disposal. The point is that believers and teachers in particular should strive to be first and foremost and to the extent possible students of the word. Greek is a valuable tool that enables more direct study of the word and knowing it is of great benefit. And as this paper proceeds, we're going to see those same benefits emerge time and again. So to reiterate that learning biblical Greek provides direct access to the text behind the translations with the accompanying insights and it facilitates comprehension and evaluation of the secondary sources that reference Greek. This brings us to our second example uh, within this section of words, uh, differentiating between sons and children in Romans 8, 21 through tw- 8, 12 through 21. Romans chapter 5, 1 through 8, 39 constitutes a major section in Paul's magnum opus. The primary focus of that section is the sanctification of the believer. Already justified by faith, the believer should pursue a life that pleases God, a life of victory over sin, thereby avoiding his temporal wrath. Throughout the section, Paul presents several important truths with respect to achieving that victory, as well as one sure way to experience failure in the Christian life by focusing on keeping the Mosaic law. Despite those important truths, the key to victory is ultimately found in chapter 8, the climax of the section where Paul unveils God's secret weapon in the spiritual battle, the Holy Spirit. 
By the time that Paul dictates Romans 8, he can say that everyone who belongs to Christ is indwelt by the Spirit in 8-9. This means that as believers, they are in the Spirit, in penumity, and are able to please God as opposed to unbelievers who are in the flesh, in sarki, and unable to please God. Although the believer's body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Just as the Spirit raised Christ from the dead, it acts as a resurrecting force within the believer to give life to his dead body. In the light of those facts, Paul writes the following. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Now, April, oh, sorry. That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, as we go through this passage, we can see here that Paul uses distinct terms when he's talking about sons and when he's talking about children. Verse 14, sons, huioi of God. Uh, there's a word that, that has sons as, as part of its root. Huiathesias. Uh, translated adoption as sons. The Spirit testifies we are children, and there it's tekna. 17, and if children, heirs also, again it's tekna. And as we continue down into verse 9, the creation is eagerly waiting for the revealing of the sons, huion. And then finally in 21, we have children of God, technon. Uh, Once again, Now, although much could be said about this passage, the current focus is on these two words, sons and children. Now, for various reasons, which I won't get into, although I'm sure many of you have heard at at this conference or previous talks, uh, I believe that Paul uses the the different terms to make an important important distinction. In this passage, I believe that sons are mature believers who live according to the Spirit, and who, by means of the Spirit, are putting to death the deeds of the body. This means that there are also believers who are not sons within the understanding of of this context, because they are not living according to the Spirit, but according to the flesh. The word children, on the other hand, encompasses all believers, and as believers, they are members of God's family, whether they're mature or not. All children are heirs of God and will experience the glorious freedom of the the new creation. Now, whether uh, you agree with this view of the text or not, 
a few important points about the value of learning Greek can be made. First, one who is studying the Greek text can easily see that Paul uses distinct terms for sons and children. This forces the careful reader to consider why that is and to provide a reasonable explanation. One clear possibility would be the position stated already. Another proposed explanation would be that Paul uses the words for sons and children synonymously and interchanges them to avoid repetition. Thus, knowing Greek opens the door to possible interpretations, but it does not necessarily resolve all interpretive differences. Uh, Second, numerous English versions use two terms, sons and children, in this passage, as does the NASB that we saw. Readers of those versions will likely assume that the two English words reflect two distinct Greek words. A few might even verify that assumption with an electronic tool or other secondary source. As such, a careful English reader can at least, upon seeing the context and the different words, consider the possibility that Paul has two groups of believers in view. Other English versions, however, show one term, usually children, for both huioi, sons, and tekna, children, thereby eliminating from consideration what this author believes to be the best interpretive option for this passage. This is not to say that translations can or even should show every interpretive possibility. That would be impossible and foolish. It does demonstrate, however, that translations, sooner or later, and for better or for worse, become interpretations, and often without the reader realizing it. Learning Greek minimizes that issue by providing direct access to the text behind the translation. It also enables one to explain to others the rationale behind differences in translations. So learning biblical Greek forces a good reader to consider and explain details in the text, opens the possibility to legitimate understandings of the text, sometimes obscured by translation. And the third point that I want to make is similar to the second, but it views the issue from a different perspective. I examined Romans 8, 12 to 21, and 16 Spanish Bibles, a list that includes the most popular versions in use today. Now, of those 16, all use one term, hijos, for both huioi, sons, and tecna, children. So to the extent that believers in the Spanish-speaking world rely solely on the Spanish translations, they are forced into a specific understanding of the text which carries with it important soteriological implications. A legitimate alternative is completely obscured from view. This shows that the call for teachers and other individuals to learn Greek is not limited to believers of one particular language. After all, whether for theological or linguistic reasons, a translation or translations in one language may mask aspects of scriptural truth that are completely obvious or at least perceivable in the translation or translations of another language, and vice versa. The resulting understandings of the scripture, or lack thereof, influence the doctrine and practice of believers who speak the affected language. This phenomenon is countered when believers of different language backgrounds can examine the Greek text, identifying those masked areas, and teach other believers about them. Thus, the Greek text serves as a corrective 
and unifying basis for the study of the New Testament within one's native language and across the language barriers. And one final point about the global church is salient. English speakers are often not aware that, in addition to exporting movies and McDonald's abroad, we export our Christianity. Regarding literature, many of the Christian works available in other languages, whether popular works by Swindoll or scholarly ones by D.A. Carson, are translated or adopted from English. If the American church de-emphasizes in-depth script study of Greek, fewer scholar, scholarly works will be produced, and those that are produced will probably be of lesser quality. That same void that begins within the American church and the English-speaking community filters into the international world. So whether Americans foster love or disdain for biblical Greek, that attitude and the results thereof will affect believers beyond our borders. So study of biblical Greek increases the demand for quality resources, and of course we're speaking more if, if this occurs on a larger scale, but every individual counts. Uh, enjoyed by believers around the world. Um, I was surprised when I went to China into a bookstore. The first thing I was surprised to find that I could go into a bookstore and find scores of Bibles for sale and also find um, books about Christianity for sale. But the books were translations um, from English, a lot of them. So I could bring up my boys in Chinese if I wanted to, which was one of the books on the bookshelf. So this is a very true statement concerning the international community. Now we can turn to examples from syntax. The first one is contrasting airships in Romans 8.17. The previous passage from Romans 8 contains another element worthy of discussion, the Mende construction. The Mende construction presents a contrast between two items. In some contexts, this contrast can be reasonably shown with an intensive such as indeed and the adversative conjunction but. Other contexts might warrant a more cumbersome rendering such as on the one hand and on the other hand to bring out the contrast. Some familiar examples, we have Mark 14, 38, keep watching and praying that it, you may not come into temptation. The spirit on the one hand is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's the Mende construction on the one hand, on the other hand. Luke 10, 2, B, the harvest is plentiful on the one hand, but the laborers are few. Acts 1, 5, for John baptized with water on the one hand with water. On the other hand, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 1.12, on the one hand, I am of Paul. They were arguing in the church saying, I am of Paul, but on the other hand, I am of Apollos, although the, um, we have and in the translation there. So consider the Greek text of Romans 8.17 where the Mende construction, where we have this Mende construction. In Romans 8.16, where we could make another grammatical point about the, we have here the Spirit itself testifies together with our spirit that we are children of God. Some translations will say testifies to our spirit that we are children of God, and that gets us into the Greek with is definitely the better translation. But we have 
in verse 17, the mende, at the beginning of verse 17, and if children also heirs, heirs on the one hand with the men and of God and heirs of Christ on the other hand. For the English translation, the spirit itself testifies with our spirit that we are uh, children of God. But if children, we are also heirs on the one hand, heirs of God, but on the other hand, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. Now, that's my translation of the text. If we proceed to the NASB, we see that in verse 17, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Paul concludes that by virtue of having God's spirit, he and his believing readers are God's children. One might recall that the giving of the spirit was mentioned in Romans 5.5, immediately following the just the section of justification by faith in Christ apart from works in chapter 3, 21 to 25, for example. And by virtue of being children, they are heirs. The apostle then uses this mende construction to highlight a distinction of some kind regarding that heirship. The heirship. What is the nature of this distinction? To begin, there are heirs of God. On the other hand, there are co-heirs with Christ. There we have heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. Uh, furthermore, the different terms punctuate this con- this contrast because we, we're using Paul is using different terms here: one for heirs and one for co-heirs, and he's talking about different persons of the Trinity involved, of God and of Christ. And then something very important that we see that helps us understand the nature of this distinction that Paul wants to make up, that Paul is explaining here. We have sugleromenoi, co-heirs. And if you see that um, this at the beginning of sugleromenoi or co-heirs, that's why it's translated co, because of the, the idea of association. And in the clause there, we suffer with him. That verb has a prefix also that has the idea of association. And the final verb that we might be glorified with him also has the same prefix, uh, soon, indicating this idea of association. So in other words, this clause that if indeed we suffer with him in order that we might be also in order that we might also be glorified with him. That clause, I would argue, modifies the idea of being a co-heir with Christ. In other words, co-heirship with Christ is specifically conditioned upon suffering with him, but being an heir of God is not. The latter, being an heir of God, is conditioned upon faith in Christ apart from works. And so that idea of associating the Subordinate clause, if we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him, fits well with that idea of its faith apart from works. And that we have a distinction. Uh, Paul's discussion in Romans 8 provides at least one detail regarding a benefit of being God's heir. 
As a child, that individual will have a glorified body and live in a new creation free from corruption. Regarding what co-glorification might entail, Paul does not explicitly say in Romans. However, 2 Timothy 2, 11-13 presents a similar motif wherein enduring with Christ results in reigning with him, but denying him results in, forfeit, in forfeiting that privilege. The concept that Christ has received a kingdom for his endurance and will grant the same privilege to believers who endure also appears in Revelation 2.26-28 and 3.21. Even in Jesus' ministry, the theme of reigning with Christ appears in passages such as Mark 10.33-45 and Luke 19.11-27. In the latter instance, the idea of reigning is based on faithfulness. Now, perhaps you notice that in the NASB, the Mende construction wasn't translated, or the way it was translated by the NASB was with the coordinating conjunction and, that the NASB did not include this idea of on the one hand, on the other hand, there was no contrast presented. In fact, the contrast that I suggest is not present in any of the English or Spanish versions that I consulted. And again, the notes in the paper. Most versions leave the men untranslated, although a few give it an intensifying force such as certainly or indeed. Uh, And even so, in those cases, the translation is and, co-heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if we suffer with them. And they they take the clause if we suffer with them to be modifying both ideas. But the fact that the translations do this is very surprising considering that Everywhere we have this construction, the Mende construction in Romans, we have an idea of a contrast. For sake of time, we'll um, we'll just jump to the English. You can see in highlighted orange, Mende, um, in verse 7, on the one hand, those who by perseverance and doing good work seek for glory, honor, and mortality will receive eternal life. But on the other hand, to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, Uh, wrath and indignation. There are about, oh, I don't know, I didn't count them, maybe 10 or 11 uses of Mende in Romans. We have here, for indeed, on the one hand, circumcision is of value. On the other hand, if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Uh, Romans 5.16 The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, and the NASB actually puts on the one hand, so you can see I'm not making it up. People do understand it this way. On the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. 6.11, on the one hand, uh, dead to sin, but on the other hand, alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's in Romans 7.25, For time, you can look at these in your own personal study time. The point is, is that if you look at them, I'm convinced that you'll agree that there is a contrast in every other use of Mende and Romans. And so why do we ignore it when we get to uh, Romans chapter 8? But this discussion attest to the value of learning Greek. Although some of the benefits, uh, these benefits were mentioned above, they're worth repeating. 
the above understanding is much easier. That is, this understanding of a co-heirship and a contrast in Romans 8 is uh, much easier to perceive, accept, and defend uh, on the basis of the Greek text than it is from the English. Second, learning Greek just allows for the exciting journey of making some of these discoveries on your own in in your personal study of the Word of God. And then third, if someone wants to disagree with this position, you're going to have a much better uh, defense if you can do it from the Greek text. If you're going to try to argue from the English text or the Spanish text or what have you, um, you'll have a much more potent argument if you have the knowledge and the competency to do it from the Greek. Now, this third point has important implications for the local church. Although I am encouraging pastors and Bible teachers to pursue competency with Greek, it's also healthy for churches to have lay people with that knowledge. Lay people who know Greek are not only blessed in their personal study of the word, but through their example, prompt the leadership to begin studying biblical Greek, or if they already know it, to grow in that area. Furthermore, a pastor is more likely to ensure that any teaching he gives based on Greek is accurate when he knows that others in the audience are able to understand and evaluate the veracity of what he is saying. This brings us to um, our second example from the, in the section on syntax, participles of plenty in Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. Greek participles are words that have a verbal and adjectival nature. In a given context, one of those two natures is emphasized. That is, sometimes a participle will function as a verb or verbal modifier, and other times a participle will function as an adjective. Similar to adjectives, the adjectival participle can function as a noun, or it can modify other nouns either directly or by predicating something about it. As other exegetes will confirm, the Greek, uh, the participle in Greek, its flexibility is what makes it particularly challenging for the reader of Greek and also why the participle can bear valuable exegetical fruit. Uh, the same is certainly true in the famous warning passage of Hebrews 6, 4-6, where we have the Greek text and it says in English for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the son of God and put him to open shame. And what we have here in the Greek text said that the Greek sentence begins in 6.4 with the word adunaton, the, which means impossible. The translators add, it is impossible for the sake of clarity, but the neutral uh, pronoun is not completely necessary. The words palenana kainidzen es metanoian, to renew again to repentance, uh, do not appear until a couple of words into verse 6. It, they're the third word in starting the third word and in verse 6, the idea of to renew and unto repentance begins. 
the point is that believe between it is impossible and to renew again unto repentance between those two words we have uh, six participles five of which are aorist tense and function in the same way the first one photosynthesis uses the the article and what that article means is that the participle is functioning adjectivally it's functioning as a noun in this context and should be translated as such um, the the contextual details and the morphological details of the word is why it's translated those who were enlightened and for the next participle, we have gusaminus te. Te, the, sec- the word in green, um, is the conjunction. And the word before the word in green is the participle. And it's also aorist participle. And what that conjunction te does is that it unites this participle with the article of the first participle. In other words... The, they're both functioning as nouns because of the first word in orange there, tus. As we go through this list, we're going to see that chi, the, the words in green there, the, the second, third, and fourth word in green, those are all conjunction and they mean and, and they all link the participles in orange to that first article and it and the force is to make all of these participles to be functioning as nouns. So that's why we have the translation, uh, those who were enlightened and those who have become partakers and those who have tasted the powers, the, the, good, the good word of God and the powers of the coming age. There is another participle in there that's not functioning in this way, but it doesn't. We won't talk about that one. And having fallen away, because it's so clear that it modifies another word, um, and have fallen away. So we're going to translate all those, those who have, those who have, those who have, those who have, those who have. That's the idea. I think there's some English here. Those who are enlightened and have tasted and have become and have tasted and um, if they fall away, now, although it may sound complicated, the grammar on this point is really straightforward. The five aorist participles, which are highlighted in orange there, their translations, um, are adjectival, they're functioning as nouns. They should be translated, those who have been enlightened, have tasted, have become, have tasted, have fallen away. All the English and Spanish versions that this author, that I consulted, agree with that conclusion, that it should be those who, those who, those who, those who. Um, and have that force with regards to the first four participles. The curious thing, however, is that the numerous translations, including the the New King James that we have there, for the final participle, uh, they reject this simple understanding and insert an if, thereby making this participle part of a conditional clause, if they fall away. The purpose seems to be, and the result definitely is, to communicate more of a hypothetical situation, especially with regards to the falling away. 
In other words, although the translators can conceive of those who were enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, the idea that those individuals have fallen away remains subject to doubt. It remains subject to an if. That's what their translation shows. But to be blunt, that sort of addition is neither necessary nor warranted given the grammar uh, discussed. The individual with an understanding of how the Greek participle works should be able to identify that fact and explain it to others. We're going to... Real quick, there are two more participles in this passage, just to bring it to your attention. They come after the idea of it's impossible to of the it, to renew unto again unto repentance in verse six. They come after that, so they're not encapsulated between the words "it is impossible" and "to renew unto repentance" as the other participles are. These two participles aren't. Uh, Aorist tense, they're present tense, to so the point being, and there's no conjunction there that links them. So the point being, these two participles should not be translated as those who, those who. These have an adverbial force. Uh, very quickly, the uh, point would be, for some participles with an adverbial force, there's various ways you can translate them various things that translators do with them. And what they do here um, is that they add a since. They're, they're saying that these last two participles, since they crucify again for themselves and put them to open shame, they're saying that they're causal. There's logical relationships between participles and the main verb when they function adverbally. And there's temporal, causal, conditional, concessions, and whatnot. But here the translators are saying, okay, we conclude this is a causal participle. Some Bibles will have a note that it could be while, a temporal participle. You could have while they crucify again for themselves, the Son of God. Uh, and the, the point being is that even in some of these translations where they try to put in italics the words that are added by the translators. They try to put them in italics so the English reader knows, oh, this word's not really there, but they're adding it for clarity. Well, if you look at the New King James and the New American Standard, for example, they, those words since isn't in italics. So the English reader gets the impression that it's part of the text when it's really a reasonable inference from the adverbial use of the Greek participle. Um, I apologize that that was so fast, but the point of this would be that learning biblical Greek provides direct access to the text and information not easily perceived or not accurately conveyed by a translation. Some of these ideas, such as this one, um, is somewhat repetitive, but it's because we keep seeing the same point again, that Greek gives you direct access to the text over against a, a translation. Now, two areas from literary devices. Um, one of these is alliteration in Romans 1, 30 to 31. 
Uh, authors use different literary techniques in their writings. These devices add flair to the message and facilitate interesting and effective communication. In Romans 1, 28-32, as Paul nears the end of his discussion regarding God's wrath against the Gentile world, he lists various vices. That list concludes with a literary splash in the form of alliteration. The final five fiendish fetishes found there all begin with the Greek letter alpha. So here we have uh, 128 and 20 just as they did not glorify God to have him in his knowledge, God delivered them over to debased mind, and then we jump down to 30. And right there, at the end of 30 and in 31, we have one, two, three, five words that all begin with the um, alpha primitive. They all begin with the letter alpha. Um, if we look at the English... Here, so, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to depraved mind. And then in verse 30 and 31, here we have those same words, how they're translated. Disobedient to parents. The Greek is, uh, is opposite. The, uh, with parents coming before disobedient. So then you can have the alliteration. But, so in the English version, we do have a reasonable attempt to maintain that literary structure. We have understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, but really the English reader has to go back to the Greek and consult it to make sure that it's really just not a literary coincidence or some happenstance of the translation to understand if the Greek has this literary feature there. And actually with the English, we lose two of the words um, because disobedient doesn't carry forward the... uh, Alliteration and without doesn't carry that forward either. And it's worse in the Spanish versions. If you look at each of those words as translated in the Spanish sister version of the NASB, the La Biblia de las Americas, that is, um, all the words are different. You can't see anything about the alliteration in um, the sister translation of this. Now, admittedly, Well, and I would say the person that has to go to a secondary source, again, loses the the joy of discovery of reading the text for himself or herself and coming across this and seeing it as opposed to going to a secondary source or a commentary to see what other people discovered. So admittedly, knowledge of this particular literary feature does not affect one's understanding of the meaning of the text. That is certainly not to say that there are not other examples that do affect one's understanding. But the current point is that knowledge of this particularly particular feature contributes to one's appreciation of the text. In other words, it impacts the reader in a rhetorical sense. Although not quantifiable, the alliteration draws the reader closer to the message because it grabs his or her attention. It encourages us to respond. Moreover, we learn something about the author's literary style, and those effects are valuable. Uh, We'll jump down quickly to, so again, uh, learning biblical Greek enhances one's ability to see details in Scripture, not necessarily visible in a translation, and it enhances one's appreciation for Scripture. The last 
literary feature I want to see is an inclusio. An inclusio is a literary device that places bookends um, around a unit of text by using similar words, similar phrases, similar ideas. Uh, and they're used to show that, that, that this text is a unit. It was particularly helpful because in the ancient days there weren't paragraph markers in the manuscripts. It was all the words were run together, all the letters were run together, so you, it helped you identify units of text. In a very uh, important passage, uh, Hebrews 5, 11 to 6, 12, we have an inclusio. Here's the Greek text. Um, now, that's in uh, chapter 5, verse 11. And then if you jump down into chapter 6, towards the end of chapter 6, we have those same two words repeated. Now, I know that the second word doesn't look like the word we just saw up here. The second word in orange doesn't look like that word. But... Uh, Trust me, it's the same word. It's just different forms, different conjugations of the same Greek verb. So if we look at it in English, concerning him we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull. No troy kegenotan. What was it? You have become dull. If we jump down in the NASB, because there are some versions that do repeat them in the same way. We have verse 12. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish. So in the, observe that the English here obscures the inclusio by rendering the first use as dull and the second use as sluggish. Now, in this passage, I would say that this feature is particularly important in understanding the meaning, or at least the, what the, in understanding the meaning. Um, as discussed previously, this passage in Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 12, contains the famous warning passage in 6, 4 to 8. The one about it is impossible to renew again to repentance uh, those who have been enlightened and that whole list of things and have fallen away. That's the warning passage that's within this. And if we look at this text here, the inclusio serves and in the block before the warning, it's very clear that the author is writing to believers. And in the block after the warning, it's very clear that the author is writing to believers. So the conclusion is, why would the block in the middle, the warning, not be addressed to those same readers, believers, or applicable to those believers. And the inclusio serves to bookmark that warning in between references to, to uh, where we have chunks of text that clearly show that they're believers. So, concerning him, we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Um, their dole of hearing gives the distinct impression that they used to have sharper hearing, sharper spiritual understanding. They're, the author says that they ought to be teachers after their time. Um, 
after such a long time of, of their discipleship, they should be teachers, but they're not. They've regressed to spiritual infancy and they need milk and not solid food. But why would he say you ought to be teachers if he doesn't even think they're believers? So clearly they're believers. He talks about how they've regressed to the infancy that solid foods for mature people who can discern good from evil. Then we have an unfortunate chapter break. Uh, the, the author of Hebrews did not put chapter 6 here. He definitely wouldn't have thought that was a good place for it. Um, and then he talks about here in chapter 6, therefore leaving elementary teaching of Christ. So rather than give them Christianity 101, he's saying that we need to move forward and God will let us do this if he permits. Um, and that they need to move forward onto onto perfection. So... Clearly, Paul's, well, I say Paul, the author of Hebrews, is talking to a group of believers. I don't necessarily think it was Paul that just came out. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm serious. <laughs> anyway, um, so at the back end of this, in Clusio, we have, but beloved, he calls them beloved. We are convinced of better things of you on the basis of what they've done in the past. He thinks that they will overcome, that they won't go fall into the, the trap and the warning that, that the author just mentioned, that they, uh, that they the love that they have shown and ministered and they're still ministering to the saints. These are not unbelievers. These are people that are believers. We desire that you show the same hope of diligence to the end. And then there we have the inclusio, so you do not will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who faith and patience inherit the promise. Um, so to conclude, Charlie is going to boot me out here. Learning biblical Greek is extremely helpful um, because it enhances one's ability to study and interpret the scriptures correctly through direct access to the text or through informed use of secondary sources. The, uh, besides the confidence that is instilled in the person who knows Greek and just from his personal study and others who listen also gives a sense of authority and confidence to the teacher who has taken the time to learn that. Um, so in light of the many benefits, I guess I would just call those who want to be diligent students of Scripture to become competent in biblical Greek, and this is particularly for those who have the enormous responsibility of teaching God's word, but it also applies to lay people and even children who might want to pursue that. Um, For various reasons, not all will be able to pursue this goal, but believe me that one of those reasons should not be that you cannot learn another language, because if you're listening to me today, it means you've learned at least one language, so you can learn Another, it is always just a matter of investing the necessary time and being disciplined. Even if it's a little bit every day, over years, a few years, you can get a good foundation in the biblical language. And believe me, it is well worth. For a good place to start on the CD, my free grammar, beginning, beginning biblical Greek, biblical Greek, beginning the adventure is on the CD. I might be on the web, it should be on the website as well. You can copy it, translate it, distribute it, do whatever you want. It's free uh, to use. And for those who do know some Greek, a Greek reader that's sold where it has footnotes is excellent to help improve with Greek. 
Luther says, and this is the last, concerning the importance of the biblical languages, and let us be sure of this, we will no longer preserve the gospel without the languages. The languages are the sheath in which the sword of the spirit is contained. They are the casket in which this jewel is enshrined. They are the vessel in which this wine is held. They are the larder in which this food is stored. And as the gospel itself points out, they are the baskets in which are kept these loaves and fishes and fragments. Thank you. And as you uh, proceeded here, the, um, uh, we'll have some Q&A for just a few minutes. Uh, before we do, though, I just wanted to uh, thank you, Nate, for this presentation. Uh, when Nate was going through the alliteration, Paul, uh, the thought struck me that what you do see in the Greek when you see kind of alliterations is it gives you more of a sense of how Paul spoke, how he wrote. Um, you, you're one step removed from that. Um, you're, we're reading uh, a letter written by a real guy, and with that little just alliteration, think, well, gee, he must have done that. And sometimes maybe you wonder, I wonder if he put the alliteration in there because his readers might want to memorize, and alliteration is kind of an easy jogger of memory. But those thoughts were going through my mind as Nate did it, that passage is, Gosh, that shows you the little neat things that distinguish Paul from somebody else. And you get that with the language. Uh, any questions? You talked about, the. Um, I think it was uh, the spirit of adoption that Paul was talking about. And, and um, I, I ran across something from, from George McDonald where he talked about... Um, how that word and the, the he felt it was very unfortunate that to, that the word was translated adoption. He took great exception to it, and I just wonder um, if you could. Um, I'm having studied that. If you could say a little bit about uh, that word, the adoption and the spirit of adoption, and uh, what other possible words could have been used to translate it, or do you have anything to? say about that I don't have much to say about that um, I suppose to bring it to the central point of the talk it would be that if you know Greek you're in the in the position to where you can go and look at the resources and evaluate what he has to say that would be the central point to take away from it uh, the second point would be I, I know that some of the translations add adoptions as sons to try to carry bring that out, you can add other words. Even in the Spanish, there's ways that they could communicate if they wanted to, the understanding that you have children and mature children, for example, just add an adjective. But I know that's how some of the translations have handled that to try to maintain the idea of sonship with that adoption, um, although then you're starting to add additional words and, and then you... That just shows that translators can't be literal word for word for word with everything because you, you either communicate the things or you want to add a nuance that you don't get with just one word in English. But regarding the overall concept, not. I'd like to ask uh, uh, Nate a question here. Uh, you just kind of mentioned it when you were finishing how you learn Greek a little bit at a time. Maybe you could just, uh, say, take a minute or two and uh, kind of give some pointers on 
just learning Greek and the, the way, uh, uh, the attitudes and so on to go, just to learn it, pick it up. Okay. The, uh, and if you download the grammar that's on the CD in the first chapter, it talks about some of these things. If you want to um, learn biblical Greek, the, the first thing would be to just, as I mentioned in the paper, that it requires time and discipline but over an extended period of time. And in some ways, that's, that's the, there's the, uh, a downside and an upside to that, I suppose. The, the downside is, and I run, to this, run into this in Guatemala, a lot of people say, well, I want something that's going to produce a fantastic result for my next Sunday sermon. And I promise that if you start studying Greek this week, you won't have anything fantastically wonderful to share on Sunday. And so that's why a lot of people don't do it, because they don't see the immediate results. And in our society and culture, and we, we want to see the immediate effect. And, but we have to be farmers, you sow, and you have to wait and wait and wait and wait before you can reap the results and the benefits of it. So that's on the one hand, that makes it difficult. On the other hand, the fact that to learn a language requires an investment of time over a long period of time means that you just don't sit it down, sit down and do it all at once. If you can put aside 20 minutes a day, 15 minutes a day, five days a week, and if you can do that for years and have the discipline to do it for you know two, three years, then you're going to have a good foundation to build on. And in the grammar that I have, uh, I think one of the neat things about the grammar that I wrote with the help of Glenn was that we try to get you into the text. So after a, two or three chapters, you're translating small portions of, of Greek. And when you're in the text, I think that encourages people to continue. And again, you might not get these great exegetical theological insights, but you have to remember those things come with time and with patience. Sometimes it's the people that know a little bit of Greek that do more damage than the people that know, that know, know Greek. Because at least the person that knows no Greek knows that they're limited in that area, whereas the person who knows a little Greek often uh, thinks they know more than they really do. So you just have to, and they try to make points. And I want to, uh, again, thank you, Nate, for your work. And I think Nate also has to be thanked for the work that he and Glenn put in on this grammar that he's talking about. One of the reasons these guys put hours and hours into that project is to provide a tool that's economically available. Students in poor countries and don't have 50 bucks or 60 bucks to buy some fancy grammar. So Nate and Glenn spent a lot of time to produce this, and it's the th same theme of their seminary. We're trying to ha get education costs down so the ordinary person can do it. And uh, when you think about language, Glenn had a, another approach to how he taught Greek. And when Glenn taught Greek uh, at the seminary, he got you into the text very rapidly before you went through all the paradigms and stuff. You learned those, but you got into the text. And what Nate was saying is the you, he, he gets you into the text. And that, that's exciting that you can at least start in some areas of the text. And you don't sit there and go through these laborious paradigms. You, you want to learn that. But you've got to have the motivation, and you get the motivation by saying, I'm, I'm blessed because I can get into the text a little bit now. 
you know, a little bit at a time. Well, let's give him a thanks and uh, wonderful job. Thank you. We have our break now.